I'm going to be in the gospel, and I'm going to be mostly talking about resurrection. So what's going on here is both the Pharisees and the Sadducees are trying to trip him up. The Pharisees are trying to trip him up to get him out of the way. Since they lacked the First Amendment, you could say stuff that would get you arrested. Actually, we starting to be there too. Anyway, so the Pharisees are looking to get him arrested so they can get him out of town. The Sadducees are just trying to embarrass him. So they come up with this stupid thing with seven sons and one lady and they ask him this question and he sort of smacks them down. In the Luke reading he doesn't smack them down nearly as hard as he does in the Mark reading. So I'm going to give them both because they're slightly different. In the Mark reading, starting in chapter 12 verse 24, Yeshua said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. That's pretty starchy. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Several things in here that are interesting. First off, Yeshua goes back to the Torah. And he says, because he is the God of the living, you're wrong. Now, reading the Torah, Moses never says anything about resurrection. So Yeshua, when he takes him back there and points to that passage, is doing something that Moses doesn't actually say, but he's interpreting it. And of course, he's the Messiah, so he gets to do that. And he's correct, of course, because he's the Messiah. But the thing that's more interesting than that is when both the Sadducees and the Pharisees hear this, they both say, wow, you're right. So it isn't the case where he has to explain it. Now, there are very few references to resurrection in the Old Testament. There are some hints, especially in the Psalms. And in fact, in Deuteronomy, Moses says that you will not mess with necromancers. Now, necromancers are people who speak to the dead. Pretty much every society worldwide that I know of believes in the continuation of some kind of existence after physical death. Say the Vikings, for example. You die in battle and you go to Valhalla where you party for the rest of eternity. Some of them believe you go to hell. But there's always this thing that something happens and you continue to exist in some way after you die. That seems to be worldwide. And as I say, the fact that Moses says don't mess with necromancers, people who speak to the dead, indicates that it was also well known among the Hebrews. In fact, we have a necromancer, as most of you remember, in 1 Samuel 28, where Saul loses his connection and goes to the witch at Endor, and she consults the spirit of Samuel. Job, favorite funeral passage, every preacher in the world uses it. I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. 
Psalm 49, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. And of course, in Daniel 12, in verse 2, and many of those who sleep in the dust shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And of course, you've got the dry bones passage in Ezekiel. That seems to be national rather than individual. So let's talk about resurrection, because there's some stuff that's Kind of weird, quite frankly. Two-stage life forms. What resurrection talks about is we are a two-stage life form, which is to say we live our life just like we are right now, then we die, and then we at some point are raised from the dead, but we continue to exist. Let me give you an example. A caterpillar and a butterfly. That's a two-stage life form. Better example is probably a mayfly. I'm going to use mayflies. Theoretically, a caterpillar could watch another caterpillar go into a cocoon and watch for a while and see a butterfly come out. And a caterpillar could theoretically figure it out. There's not a lot of processing power in a caterpillar, so I don't think they do. But a mayfly is even better because a mayfly starts off its life living on the bottom of the water. Goes around being trout food, and those that aren't trout food eat stuff. And at some point, they change and they rise to the surface. And if they avoid being trout food in the process, what comes up to the top is called a dun. And then they shed that and they start flying, and they've got now three days to make more mayflies. And the point I'm making here is the nymph, which is the first part that hatches from an egg, is underwater. The final form is flying in the air. So unlike our hypothetical caterpillar who could observe what happens, there's no possibility that a mayfly could observe what happens. And furthermore, the mayfly, as it's flying around, there's no resemblance whatsoever to the nymph on the bottom of the stream. Completely different looking. So that's what I'm calling a two-stage life form. We are also a two-stage life form. We have hints in Scripture, but most of the hints that we get, visions of prophets, are highly symbolic. They're very symbolic visions. We have a number of instances of raising from the dead, both in the Old and New Testament. But there what happens is you have a corpse, the Shunammite's son, Lazarus, and that corpse gets reanimated, stands back up, and goes on about the rest of his life. And at some point, presumably, dies again. Yeshua is the only example that we have of someone dying ascending into heaven and is completely different when he comes back. Now, he's still recognizable, but he can do stuff that Lazarus, for example, couldn't do. For example, he just shows up in a locked room. Lazarus couldn't do that, or at least not as far as we know. So you have in Yeshua the only example of someone with a, quote, resurrection body, unquote. Now, let's go back to our parable. The context here is marriage. The Sadducees set up this hypothetical thing with seven 
guys who all die childless and this one gal. And they say, all right, in the resurrection, whose wife is she? And what Yeshua says is, in the resurrection, we become like angels, neither marrying nor given in marriage. Notice he doesn't say we become angels. We do not. One of the things that we see in many of these symbolic visions that happen is there's a lot of weird creatures that inhabit the throne room of God. You've got creatures flying around with six wings. You've got creatures with four faces. You've got creatures with eyes all the way around. So lots of stuff that's, at least to our understanding, weird in the throne room of God. It seems like, in Yeshua's case, he looks and acts just like a man after resurrection. And in fact, one of the things that he does is sort of a signature move, is when he shows up to anybody after his resurrection, he says, Hey guys, got anything to eat? That's usually the first question he asks. And the idea there is what he's demonstrating is he is not a ghost. He shares fish with them, shares bread with them, and all that kind of stuff. So the idea here is what he's showing them is this is not a ghost. This is not an apparition. This is somebody who eats and drinks and you can touch and and so forth. So, the context is marriage. So why would people in the resurrection not marry and be given in marriage? The reason they don't marry and are not given in marriage is, remember, we're a two-stage life form. And the first part of our life is here on earth, in the physical body that we have. In order to get to resurrection, you've got to pass through where we are right now. So when you get to the next stage, the mayfly flying around, the butterfly, if you will, something that is completely different, we no longer marry or are given in marriage because we no longer have children. The whole purpose of marriage is to raise children. Now, there's other benefits to marriage, don't get me wrong. I mean, lots of good stuff that happens in a marriage, I'm all for it. But the reason that it's set up is so that we can bring children into the world and we can raise them. That's the reason for marriage. So. When we are raised from the dead, we become like angels. As far as I know, we don't get wings. As far as I know, we don't become cherubim or seraphim, and we don't have four faces or any of the things that go on in some of the heavenly beings. We still look like men. We still behave like men. We are still recognizable as men ourselves. But we no longer marry or are given in marriage. Because marriage has served its purpose down here, and it's not possible for us to reproduce there, because children made there would not be down here to go through this stage of their life. This idea we are a two-stage life form, like a butterfly or a mayfly or anything like that, that starts off as one form, and changes and becomes a completely different thing. And what I'm suggesting to you is just like your caddisfly at the bottom of the stream 
has no way of imagining or finding out what it is like to be a mayfly, we have the same problem. That's why I like the mayfly example, because a mayfly is under the water and then goes into a completely different milieu, flying in the air. So, what Yeshua is doing with this marriage example is he is reinforcing this idea that we are a two-stage life form. Now, let's talk about the new heaven and the new earth. How many of you think in the new heaven and the new earth, the streets are going to be paved with gold? That's the new Jerusalem. So the new Jerusalem, the streets are paved with gold. You don't need any street lights because God himself is there and provides light. All of that. That's the new Jerusalem. And as I am fond of saying, the camp in the wilderness is modeled on the new heaven and the new earth. In the camp in the wilderness, you've got the tabernacle in the middle. And the tabernacle is coated with what? Gold. Remember, the walls are all gold. Everything in it, the box and all that kind of stuff are gold. You've got pillars of silver. And what you have is specialists, priests, who service this thing. And you have camped around them all the rest of the Israelites. Now, what I'm suggesting to you is New Jerusalem is analogous to that, except there, instead of just having the Levites service the place, you have all Israel servicing the place like they were designed to do. But outside, you have the nations all around, Revelation. And as far as we know, the nations aren't walking on streets of gold. The streets of gold would be analogous to the temple or the tabernacle. So, one of the things that Paul talks about when he's talking about resurrection, and he talks about it in Corinthians, he uses the metaphor of a seed instead of the metaphor of a bug. I don't know, maybe that's more flattering or something. I don't know. I kind of like the metaphor of a bug myself. But he uses a seed, and the reason he uses a seed is because a seed has to die and be planted in the earth in order to have it come up something new. And of course, an acorn looks nothing like an oak tree. So the idea of your resurrection body, you still recognize it's you, but what it otherwise looks like, you got no idea. The difference between you and a mayfly or you and a butterfly is that you get to alter what you're going to be like while you're here. So a butterfly is a butterfly is a butterfly. If it's a monarch caterpillar, it shows up as a monarch butterfly. And you are human, so when you get planted in the earth and rise, you are also going to be human again. But what you can do is you can alter the seed that gets planted in the ground. So what you have in the case of our caddisfly or our butterfly is every one of them is pretty much alike, pretty much all the same. You're not so. And what you're supposed to be doing here in this stage in your life is you are supposed to be constructing the seed that is going to be planted. And as I'm fond of saying, you've all heard it before, what a seed is, 
is information. The way I would describe it, it's like a thumb drive. The physical thumb drive is not what's important. What's important is the information that's encoded on the thumb drive. And whether that information is on a thumb drive or, for those of you who are old enough to remember, a floppy disk or even older, punch cards or any of those kinds of things, the medium of the information is not what's important. It's the information itself. And the same with a seed. So you have a seed and you have a wheat seed, you have an acorn, whatever. The physical container for that is not what's important. What's important is the information that's on the seed, which is the pattern by which the resurrected being, oak tree, wheat plant, whatever, is going to be created. The information is what's important. What you get to do is you get to pack your seed with information. The information that is in you that is going to be raised from the dead is not predetermined. You get to decide that. That's the whole purpose of this part of your life. And unlike a mayfly where everybody's the same, you know, they all come up and those that aren't trout food reproduce and it starts all over again, they're always, always the same. You are not so. In this life, as you live, as you study, as you worship, as you do all of the things that you're doing in your life, what you are doing is you are storing information in the seed that is going to be planted in the ground and is going to be raised up a butterfly. But what you are is being determined here. What happens as you go forward, I have no idea. All of the things that we see are often very highly symbolic. John's vision is terribly symbolic. And what we don't know is what's going to happen next other than the fact that we're going to be there. That we know. And we know God is going to be there. We know Yeshua is going to be there. And we can infer that there's got to be some reason why we're all going to be different when we get there. I don't know what that is. I am inferring that there's going to be stuff for us to do. And we can infer that from the parables that Yeshua says. Take, for example, the parable of the talents. You've got three guys, each of whom is given resources. Two of them invest, and one of them is terrified and doesn't invest. And what I'm suggesting to you is the two that invest have packed information on their seed, and when they come back up, God is going to look at them and say, yes, you were successful in this, therefore you're going to go do this, whatever this is. The one who was afraid and hid his seed, not sure what's going to happen with him. There's going to be stuff to do. I don't know what it is. God doesn't tell us what it is. But what he does tell us is that the time that you spend here adding information to the seed that you're going to plant is going to be important to what's going to happen with you on the other side. So, I'm going to close with some quotes from Revelation. Revelation 2.7 Church at Ephesus To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Revelation 2.11, Smyrna. 
The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Revelation 2.17, Pergamum. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name, written on the stone which no one knows except the one who received. Are you starting to get a pattern here? Revelation 2.26, Thyatira. To the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Revelation 3.5, Sardis. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before the angel. You starting to get a pattern here? Revelation 3.12, Philadelphia. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. Revelation 3.21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. You get a pattern here. What Yeshua is saying to John, and he's writing it down, is what you do here matters. And prevailing over the trials, tests, and tribulations that you all are going to face in this world is important. And the one who prevails is the one who is going to be the butterfly in the new heaven and the new earth. There are going to be people who are going to give up and are not going to prevail. Not sure what's going to happen to them, but I really don't want to find out. Well, actually, we will find out, but I really don't want to join them. There's a better way to say that. And what I'm suggesting to you is you don't want to be one of those either. And the use of the word conquer or overcome indicates that it isn't easy. It is not the case that you just get to sit on your blessed assurance and by osmosis you're going to become one of the butterflies. It takes work. It takes struggle. It takes overcoming. And that's why you're here. That's why you are in this part of your binary life. Right now you're the caddisfly grubbing around on the bottom of the stream, but Understand that at some point you are going to be a mayfly if you overcome.